take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's the kind of book that you probably need about three or four days' notice to find it, but it, it's in there. It's in the Old Testament, um, and we're going to be in chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3. Before, um, before we look at the Scripture together, though, just a couple of announcements, uh, one personal and two uh, ministerial related to the church family. Um, Janetta Adair has asked me to remind you that we are only 16 homes away from having all the hospitality needs covered for uh, Music Mission Kiev, 16 homes with two men each. So if you're able to uh, provide hospitality, you're one of those homes, please see Janetta, email her, see her this evening, sign up in the, the lobby on Sunday. If you need additional information, you can see Susan Lewis. For tickets, you're handling tickets. Um, and be sure and tell her that you want the Jeff Sample discount when you uh, see her for tickets. When I first came, I did that about the bookstore, uh, just totally in jest, and uh, Cindy Shriver said people were coming in and saying, Jeff said I could, I could get the discount. Um, there is no discount. It's, it's $20. But uh, please uh, feel free to either get tickets uh, or do both, get tickets and sign up for hospitality. Also, uh, not much has been said. Is this the Sherwood uh, Forest? Um, Sherwood Forest, opportunity to serve October the 31st from 5 to 7. You can sign up for 5 to 6 or 6 to 7 or sign up for both hours. You'll probably be hearing more about that. There's information on the table about those, and if you can help in any way, please feel free to do that. Um, Most of you, many of you, maybe all of you, are aware that my father-in-law passed away on um, Saturday morning. Melinda, my wife, um, her dad, we received a phone call about 6.30 uh, Saturday morning that he had um, was at St. Francis Hospital, massive heart attack. Um, he did not make it. Uh, we had the service yesterday. Um, thank you so much for your prayers, for your expressions of encouragement and sympathy. Melinda is not here, but many of you have asked about her and have stated your concern and uh, your, your prayer support, and we appreciate that. She especially appreciates that. Um, Dr. Young will be back on Sunday. Uh, rested, refreshed, renewed, and we'll be back uh, this coming Wednesday night, and we'll be back, guess where? Uh, gospel, uh, not not a gospel, but the gospel, the book of Romans in chapter 9. So uh, we'll, we'll look forward to his return into the ministry. Habakkuk chapter 3, this is somewhat of an unfamiliar book. You know, if you started the new year, January, with noble plans to begin to read through the Bible, and you start in the book of Genesis, you can make it through Genesis. When you get into Leviticus, it gets a little sticky. If you persevere through the Psalms, things pick up. But when you get into the minor prophets, uh, particularly some of these words that's very difficult to uh, pronounce, it gets really, really sticky. But we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And um, it's a brief book, but it's, it's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, particularly for the principle of, of justification by faith alone. Paul alludes to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 as being the principle by which we're made right with God. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, and that appears in the epistles of Paul four times. And he, it is a direct quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. We're in chapter 3, verse 16 through 19, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I heard, and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. 
Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and made me walk on my high places. This is a a summons to worship the living God. It's an encouragement to rejoice in the Lord God who is the strength of our life, who as the, the psalmist David says in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is the strength of my life. This focuses our attention on the grand object of our worship, God himself, the one who is seated upon a throne, who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose revelation we hold in our hands this evening. And this is a a book in which the prophet has struggled with God before God and in the presence of God in prayer. And at the end of this book, he is brought to a place of worship, a place of recognition of the greatness of God. And in that recognition, he has moved to a place of worship and prayer and humility before the Lord. Some of you will be old enough to remember the names Corey and Betsy Ten Boom. You, you remember those names? Maybe you've read about them. Maybe you've read Corey's book. Maybe you read about them through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. They were single Christian women who were incarcerated um, by the Nazis for their stepping out in bold faith to house and hide Jews during um, uh, the World War II in Holland. Once they were discovered, they were apprehended, they were brought to a concentration camp. When they were brought into the concentration camp, these, these devout women, single women who were reared in a godly home where the name of Christ was invoked, where God was worshipped, where the people of the Lord were revered and honored, these single women were stripped naked before the leering eyes of the German soldiers. They were paraded before them. They were humiliated. They were subjected to taunts and ridicule and mocking. And Betsy turned to her sister, Corey and said, We want to honor the Lord, and we're going to rejoice in the Lord in order to do that. God has given us the opportunity, she said, to experience something of the sufferings of the Savior. And we're going to rejoice in Him because He too had been stripped and exposed to the judgment and wrath of men at Calvary. And they did rejoice. In fact, they rejoiced over and over again in the midst of incredible trauma and humiliation. They worshipped God. They rejoiced in Him. They counted it all joy. And the way that they were able to do that is because they had someone in whom they rejoiced, not something over which they rejoiced. To be honest with you, most of the time, my joy is found in something, some event, some circumstance some serendipitous occasion that fills me with uh, a measure of happiness and joy, and I express that. But the kind of faith that's uh, revealed here in the third chapter of Habakkuk, the kind of faith that was exemplified by the Ten Boom sisters, is a joy that's not anchored in circumstances. It's not anchored in ease and comfort. It's not anchored in everything going our way. In fact, it's anchored in God Himself. It's the kind of Joy and faith that Paul and Silas expressed in Acts 16 when they were beaten. They were cast into the inner prison. They were put in stocks after having been beaten. They were, they were put in a, a, a very uncomfortable posture. 
And at midnight, they begin to sing praise to God. They begin to worship God and they begin to pray. It's the same kind of joy that John Bunyan, the tinker turned Baptist preacher, exhibited when he was incarcerated at Bedford um, in jail. And his only crime was he was a preacher of grace. He proclaimed the simple gospel that you can be right with God on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He was locked behind those bars of his own choosing because he would not cease to proclaim that simple gospel message. And John Bunyan chose to worship in someone, not in his circumstances, which were were dark and depressing at best. His first child, his oldest child, Mary, was blind at birth. And uh, he penned in his journal that when Mary would come to visit him, his first child, his beloved Mary, his blind little Mary, and when she would leave, it was as if the flesh was being pulled from his bones when she would walk out. And it was his commitment to Christ and his desire to honor Christ through the proclamation of the gospel that kept John Bunyan in prison. But he took a little... um, wooden stool and a three-legged stool and he knocked a a stick of that off, knocked one of the legs off, I should say, and whittled it into a flute through which he could worship and praise God. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, that came from the pen of a man who was incarcerated just because of the truths of the gospel. Habakkuk exemplifies that kind of faith, a faith that that obviously is tossed and torn by circumstances, but, but a faith that nevertheless finds joy, In the living God, a faith that rejoices because it's anchored firmly, because it's grounded deeply, because it's rooted solidly in the character of God who has revealed himself to us in the pages of the Scripture. If you've read the book of Habakkuk, if you've ever been in a Bible study, and I know uh, I don't see Joanne here this evening. I suppose she's with Laura, her beloved Laura. Uh, I know that there was a precept Bible study at one time that Joanne was in, and maybe some of you other ladies have been through a precept Bible study, but you know that the book starts off, if you'll turn over to chapter 1 for just a minute, the book starts off with Habakkuk in a, in a deteriorating national situation. Um, the, the, the press of Jerusalem was chronicling all the bad things that were happening in the culture. They were in a long downward spiral. And so the, the opening chapter in verse 2 uh, poses, Habakkuk poses this question, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I am praying, but you're not listening. I'm crying out to you, but you're not responding. I am calling upon your name, but there's no answer from heaven. In verse 2, he says, I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and Justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. This is the prayer. He's crying out to God. He's pouring out his heart and he's wrestling with the Lord because things are not good. In fact, they're grim and growing darker by the moment. And God answers in verse 5. And We're not going to go, obviously, through the whole book, but, but I wanted you to get a sense of how the book starts off. It starts off with a man called by God to be a prophet, pouring out his complaint before God in prayer. He is honest before the Lord with his emotions. He's honest before the Lord with the circumstances, and he is compelled to cry out to God, basically, why are you not doing something about this? 
And when the Lord responds in chapter 1, verse 5, He doesn't like the response. He doesn't like the answer. Chapter 1, verse 5, look among the nations. The Lord says, this is God's response, observe, be astonished and wonder, because I'm doing something in your days, and you would not believe it if you were told. And what God is going to do is this. God is going to answer the prayer by sending judgment. God is going to answer the prayer by raising up adversity. He's going to send the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, a murderous people, a barbaric people to come and judge them. If you could put yourself in this situation, it would be as if the Lord had raised up South Korea, which is very much in the news, to present um, um, a, a threatening scenario of a nuclear holocaust, and God's people are crying out to Him for mercy and deliverance, and, and they're, they're talking about all the social indicators of a culture like ours, that is deteriorating, and, and uh, we're all aware of the news, and we read the newspaper, and we watch the news, and we're aware of the social statistics. And we're moved to cry out to God and say, you see what's happening? Do you see the crime, the, the, the deterioration of the family? Are you not going to do something about it? And God says, yes, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to overrun your borders and subject you to a hostile power and authority. We could never imagine that in America that we would be subjugated, that we would be under the iron boot of some foreign power, some foreign control. But that's exactly what's going to happen. God's going to judge His people. And Habakkuk again remonstrates with the Lord and says, how can you do this? And so back and forth they go. Habakkuk prays and God responds. And Habakkuk says in essence, very loose paraphrase, I don't like the answer. I don't like what you're going to do. If you'll turn over to chapter 3 by verse 2, however, Habakkuk, his, his heart is becoming softer and he's more humble and more pliant, responsive to the Lord. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he prays. This is the prayer of Habakkuk. And he prays in verse 2, Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear. And so he prays, Oh God, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known and wrath, remember mercy. The book alternates back and forth until finally Habakkuk says in chapter 3, Lord, I know you're going to send judgment, but please, in the midst of judgment, please remember mercy. And in the midst of what you're going to do, God, renew your work in the midst of your people. His tone is transformed by the end of the book so that as we read this evening, he can find rest in the midst of some very bad circumstances and some very bad situations that are going to be overtaking him, Israel, and in particular the city of Jerusalem. We rightly confess that God controls all things for ultimately his glory and our good, and, and we believe that and we embrace that, but still in moments of adversity, and those moments may become days of adversity, and those days may become months and seasons of adversity, sometimes we live as if we control all things. And we live as if we wanted to manage the thing and control the thing. And we're frustrated when we can't. I know I am. I am frustrated when I, when I can't get it. And so we, we, we look for refuge. We look for an escape. We, we look to be able to, to buy our way out of it, pay our way out of it, or, or manipulate the circumstances in some way. 
But you can come away from the book of Habakkuk with this, with this idea that there are some things, guys, that we cannot manipulate to our good and to our satisfaction. And that's the kind of situation that Habakkuk finds himself in. And his final posture is found here in chapter 3, in which, having been brutally honest before the Lord, he can say, I don't like the answer, and I don't like the circumstances, and I don't like what you say is going to happen. But in spite of all of that, I will rejoice in you, and I will find joy in you, and I will find hope in you, and I will find my rest in you. And ultimately, at the end of the day, is that not the only place to find joy? At the end of the day, is that not the only place ultimately to find rest and peace and satisfaction is in the living God? So how do pleasure-addicted, comfort-loving, prosperous Western Christians find joy and satisfaction in God above all things? Well, I think you could follow the path of Habakkuk through here. You can wrestle with God in prayer. You can wrestle with Him before your life and your circumstances. You can pour your heart out to Him. Psalms, um, I've discovered, as you have, I'm sure, is a great way. You can take those psalms. We opened up this evening by singing from Psalm 143. Jim didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what Jim was going to do. But in God's providence, it fits in that you can take the psalmist's experience You can take the anger of the Psalms. You can take the unbelief of the Psalms. You can take the the, the struggle of the psalmist and you can personalize those. Those inspired words can fill your heart and come out your mouth. You can journal those prayers. I I don't know if you've ever kept kind of a prayer journal, but uh, many people have, have found that writing out your prayers to the Lord or struggling with God in prayer. There have been seasons of my life, I'm not currently doing it by the way, but there have been seasons of my life where I needed wisdom, I needed direction, or was struggling with this or that, and I found writing out those struggles and writing out those requests and pinning those prayers and asking for God's intervention became a great source of encouragement because I could go back at the end of the month, I could go back at the end of the quarter and read my struggles in prayer and I could also go back and realize that God has often answered prayer and in my insensitivity to his dealings in my life or circumstances I went right by it in gratitude but the point is is that we can we can become brutally honest before God in prayer as Habakkuk did and pour out our hearts to him and we can also allow the the great truth that God does control all things seep from our head as a as a dry doctrinal notion into our hearts where it becomes a living, practical reality that the, the living God who's seated upon a throne that will never be toppled, that will never be usurped or successfully challenged, holds our lives in the palm of His hand, and we can find our comfort and our joy in that knowledge. Just a couple of quick observations. Starting in verse 16, the kind of faith that um, causes us to rejoice in God is a Faith, number one, that acknowledges the circumstances. That's what Habakkuk did in verse 16. The coming judgment that God had promised through the Chaldeans filled him with fear and dread, and he voiced that fear and dread in verse 16. My inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. In other words, I am afraid at what's going to happen. I am scared at what's going to happen. But he voiced that. These are 
understandable responses to real-life situations. And the Bible is filled with real-life situations, real people in real space-time moments who struggle with God, who struggle with what God is doing. All the, the heroes of the Bible, the people that, uh, that we read about and hear preached about were alloyed with sin and, and unbelief, real people with real issues and real problems. Uh, Elijah, greatly used to the Lord, but becomes deeply depressed and discouraged and runs 40 days into the wilderness and says, I'm the only one left. I've had the Elijah syndrome. You know what that is? He says, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. I've got 7,000 that I've reserved for myself. They've never bowed the knee. The Elijah syndrome is where you take your problem and you magnify it 7,000 times to where it becomes bigger than the Lord himself. And God says, no, you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 people in Jerusalem that you know nothing about. Jeremiah became so discouraged in, in ministry and so discouraged as a prophet proclaiming faithfully the word of the Lord, a message that people did not want to hear, calling them to repentance and warning them of impending judgment, when every other false prophet was promising peace and prosperity. Jeremiah, nearly the lone voice, calling for repentance and humility before the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 20, he said, You've deceived me. I hate the message you've given me. In fact, I hate it so much I'm not going to preach it anymore. I refuse. I quit. And by the end of the chapter, though, Jeremiah says, I can't quit because your word is shut up in me like a fire in my bones, and I cannot quit. Uh, Peter, Matthew 14, gets out of the boat, walks on the water, begins to sink, and says, Lord, help me, I perish. Three times denies the night of our Lord's betrayal that even knew Jesus the third time invokes condemnation on himself if he's lying. David, wherever you look in the Bible, you find real people, real circumstances, real struggles, and we enter into those real circumstances and real struggles, and we make their words our words, and we make their prayer our prayer, and faith acknowledges the circumstances. It does not paint an unrealistic picture. Um, it does not gloss over reality. It's not a detachment or avoidance. It's not a fatalistic resignation. It's not sheer bravado, a stiff upper lip and, and buck up and get through it. It's not grin and bear it. But what faith does is it sees all of life and all the circumstances of our lives through the lens of God's truth. And it sees God as He really is, an awesome God who loves us with an everlasting love, who has set His affection upon us, and will someday bring us to the consummate state of glory in His presence. Faith sees life as it really is. There was a huge cultural national slide in chapter 1. It wasn't hidden from God. What God was going to do in raising up the Chaldeans, it wasn't hidden from God. And though Habakkuk didn't like it, by chapter 3 he says, I don't like it and it scares me, but I will worship you in spite of that. I will worship you no matter what you're going to do. You know what the most repeated command in the Bible is? When I was a kid growing up, I thought the most, comedic, most repeated command in the Bible was don't. <laughs> don't. But it's not. The most repeated command in the Bible is fear not. And why would that be the most repeated command? Because that's something we most often struggle with is fear. A real struggle. Yet God knows our frame. Psalm 103 says He remembers that we are dust and 
He stoops in mercy like a father. He pities his children. And he stoops in grace and mercy to sustain us by his promise and his character and his power. And at the end of the day, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. But he's given us power and love and a sound mind. And he's given us of himself and of his spirit. And he calls us not to fear-filled living, but to faith and simple trust and reliance upon him. This is where the, the history of God's dealings with Israel as Habakkuk rehearses them. And, you know, we're not going to have time, and I wouldn't take you all the way back through it anyway. But, but in chapter 3, what Habakkuk begins to do, and, and, uh, and I commend this to you as well, he just begins to go back, and it's, it seems a little archaic to us, and maybe we don't get the good of it uh, on the first reading. But, but look at chapter 3, verse 3. He just begins to recount God's dealings with Israel in the past. He begins to recount God's past deliverance, how God has appeared to them, how God has revealed himself to them. Uh, for example, verse 3, God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He, he has rays flashing from his hand. And there's the hiding of his power. He just begins to rehearse all that God is and all that God has done in revealing himself to his people. Um, I was reared in a church tradition where we prayed out loud. Um, of course, we pray out loud here, but when we prayed at home, we prayed out loud. We'd, um, there are times, um, I'm ashamed to say this, and this is going to be a permanent recording now on record, but there are times where we would pray at night, and in my early teen years, my dad would say, well, you know, it's bedtime, let's pray. And uh, we'd get on our knees. And there were... Uh, my dad would be kneeling in one chair. I'd be kneeling in another prayer. Mom kneeling in another prayer. We'd get on our knees. And there were times where I would fold, you know, I'd be kneeling. But my heart was just as cold as ice. I was kneeling out of a posture of respect for my dad. But, but I was a gazillion miles from there. But this is what I remember. My dad calling upon the Lord out loud for his will to be done in my life. And whenever there were situations, financial stress, health crises, financial adversity, the response was always, let's pray. That meant we went to our knees and my dad would cry out for God's help. Oh, God, he would say. Um, and he would begin to rehearse the character and the nature of God and the faithfulness of God. And then he would present the request and the petitions before the Lord. All that to say, this is what Habakkuk is doing. And, and this is, uh, you know, you love application? Well, here's one. Take, take the Bible and just begin to pray like the Bible. Open the, the, the Scripture and begin to make those words your prayer. You begin to call upon the Lord. David said, I've been young and, and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And I've never seen his seed begging bread. And you begin to cry out to the Lord and you say, God, I'm young and I've been old, but you've never forsaken your people. And you're not going to forsake me now. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. Faith acknowledges the circumstances. It's realistic with them. But it pulls the character and the nature of God and the faithfulness of God and all of his dealings with you as a family and his individuals and his dealings with his people in the Old Testament. It rehearses all that before the Lord. You can find that in, in uh, both Testaments. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat. Um, Surrounded by the first million-man army, the million-man march, and they're marching on Jerusalem. 
And he says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. You're covenant-keeping God. You gave us this land. You said you would defend this land, and we believe it. Now defend it. And God responded. And that's what Habakkuk does. We stand in a far better position than Habakkuk to consider the faithfulness of God. Just consider the whole flow of redemptive history. We have the record of Christ's life and death and ministry, of His resurrection and ascension. We have the incredible riches of grace in Ephesians 2 that Paul talks about. We have better promises based on a better covenant, based on a better priesthood, the risen Christ interceding for you and for me. And you begin to remember all of that and bring all of that to bear upon your circumstances. I'm not saying that will change your circumstances, but it will burn a faith into your heart that will rejoice in the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. Secondly, faith anchors itself not, not in the circumstances. Faith anchors itself in God. That's where Habakkuk's hope and faith is anchored. Not in the stuff that God supplies. Notice verse 17 again. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, and though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. You know what happens when we run out of eggs in our house? We go buy more eggs. You know what happens when we run out of orange juice? We go buy more orange juice. When we run out of milk, we just go get more milk. But if you lived in an agrarian culture such as that, if the famine came, the pest came, the locust came, and there was no rain and you had a drought, you didn't eat because there's no um, Kroger to go restock your shelves with. He is envisioning the, the worst-case scenario, a catastrophic scenario in which there's nothing to eat, no figs, no fruit on the vine. The olives have disappeared. The fields are parched and barren. The flocks and herds are non-existent. And he says, yet then, I will find my joy in you. I will find my hope in you. Because his faith and hope was anchored not in the stuff that God gives, not in the gifts that God gives, but in the giver himself. Imagine ill health, a terminal diagnosis, a great financial reversal leading to complete bankruptcy, even poverty. Imagine all of that. And yet at the end of all that, saying, Father, I will yet rejoice in you and find my joy and my satisfaction in you. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord warned His people that when you come into the land of promise and you live in houses that you have not built and you eat fruit from vineyards that you did not plant and you harvest from crops that you did not plant or tend, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God and say to yourself, see what my hand has accomplished, see what my power has created. He says, remember the Lord. And we naturally inevitably trust in secondary causes and gifts instead of trusting in the Lord Himself. Faith, however, the kind of faith Habakkuk exhibits and calls us to is not rooted in the the gifts or the secondary causes. It's rooted in God Himself. And the result of that is joy in God in verse 17. Joy comes through a right relationship with God. It's the gift of grace. It's cultivated in our lives by the Holy Spirit. 
Um, I remember reading some years ago a book by J.I. Packer, uh, whom I really like as an author, uh, a book entitled Hot Tub Religion. Hot Tub Religion. And basically, it was a scathing critique of Western Christianity and our love of comfort. Um, But he, he makes the case over and over that real contentment is the result of God's Spirit working in our lives, producing and growing that contentment in spite of the circumstances. And I think that's what you see here in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk has wrestled with the Lord in prayer. At the end of it, he comes out worshiping God because joy comes out of a relationship of grace through faith in God. It's, a, it's an abiding joy, a deep joy produced by the power of God's Holy Spirit. It's the result of God's Spirit filling our hearts in relationship to Himself and therefore is utterly independent of the circumstances. I, I, um, I just wonder out loud, you know, let me just think out loud with you for a moment. I wonder in my own life if there really is much of that kind of joy where there's a deep wellspring of joy in God independent of my health, independent of my circumstances, the condition of my family, independent of how well things are going for me right now. I Only the Lord knows, but I wonder about that. There are many counterfeits to it. And there are many counterfeits in an unconverted world. There are many things that you can escape to and find solace and comfort. But if they're not rooted and anchored in God, eventually they're dry holes. And the well runs dry. Um, I just finished reading through Jeremiah um, in personal time devotionally. And and I was struck and convicted by what Jeremiah says in chapter 2 of his people. He says, you've committed two evils. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And you've carved out cisterns which are broken and hold no water. Might the Lord fill us with a joy that's anchored and rooted in Him as He has revealed Himself to us in Christ. If you'll turn back just for a second here and we'll close to chapter 2. Look at, um, look at verse 4. Um, it depends on your translation, but some will say the just will live by his faith. <clears throat> uh, the New American Standard says the righteous will live by his faith. How do you live by faith? What is, what is it to live by faith? I think chapter 3, if you'll turn back there, chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, really the commentary on what it is to live by faith. We live by faith in an unseen God who's promised, who's sustained us, who's shown us His faithfulness and His nature and His character. And this kind of faith, finally this evening, in verses 18 and 19, is renewed in worship. It's a faith that's vocalized and strengthened by worshiping in, in, in God. I uh, kind of got sidetracked a while ago talking anecdotally about uh, my father's prayer habit growing up. Um, I found in, in, in real um, times of struggle and stress and adversity in my own life that I want to be alone and I want to pray out loud because I want to be able to pray like I want to pray. And I, I want to pray without... Anybody else hearing me? Um, I want to be able to lay flat out on a floor in the carpet if I want to. 
and beg God for mercy and grace. I want to be able to pace and walk and plead for the Lord's intervention and for His help and for His peace. And this little reference in verse 18 and 19, this word rejoicing literally means to jump and to twirl about. It's a spontaneous reaction as joy fills the heart. It is expressed. Brent and I are from the same the same denominational background, and I'm sure you, you can identify with some of that calling upon the Lord for help that, that my, my family did. But you know what? Right here, an Old Testament prophet, this whole idea of rejoicing is declaring to God His worth. It's vocalizing and verbalizing, Lord, I love You, and I worship You, and You're my God, and You're the, you're the anchor of my soul. And you see this need, and you see my circumstances, and you've heard the request, and you know the need better than I do. And I will not presume to instruct you on what to do, but God grant grace for your answer. Help me to find joy and peace in the midst of it. And this, I think, fuels the faith. Worship renews our faith in God because it's vocalized and strengthened by rejoicing in Him. We more or less fling ourselves into God. We cast ourselves upon Him and worship and praise. And praise, be, praise becomes the fuel that feeds the, the faith. It's vocalized and strengthened by joy in God. Just real quick and we'll pray and close. I uh, began to look at this word rejoicing in the Scripture and, and the Bible's full of examples of God's people rejoicing in response to God's work and His character. Uh, Psalm 118, rejoice in God's work in general, rejoice in the restoration of His people, and on and on I could go. But you know what the number one thing is God's people rejoice in in the Bible? Him. Him. They rejoice in Him. The all-sufficiency, all-powerful, all-gracious, all-wise, all-knowing God who has brought us into a fellowship and relationship with Himself in which He is pleased to call us His sons and His daughters. And that fills the heart of God's people with joy. Habakkuk recognizes the source of his joy and strength is not found in himself or in his circumstances. It's found in the Lord. And often the, bless, the absence of blessings and whatever that entails, rejection by people, material loss, family loss, deprivation, of some kind, often the absence of those blessings becomes the crucible in which God does His greatest work in our lives. And in that, you and I can take joy that we're in His hands and He knows what He's doing and we can rejoice in the midst of unpleasant circumstances when we don't understand it because of who and what He is. May The Lord use the circumstances of your life and my life and the truths of His Word to deepen His work of grace in our lives so that our hearts brim full with joy in the Lord. Think about the potent witness that would be where you live and where you work. If your life and my life really manifest a deep, genuine, abiding joy in the Lord, how seldom do we see that? And you can only see it in relationship to God. Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you this evening.
May you become the deep abiding longing of our heart. May you um, clarify our eyes, our vision of you. May you open the eyes of our heart that we might see you as one who is incredibly great, one who is sufficient for every need and circumstances um, that we may find ourselves in this evening. Uh, May you fill us with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory as we consider all that you um, are to us in Christ, all that you've promised to be for us because of Christ. And in the several circumstances of our lives this evening, fill us, Father. Fill us with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that our hearts would abound in praise and worship of you for your sake alone. And for this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.